looking here at Romans, and you know, as I prayed, we're, we're, we're talking about not, a not-so-fun topic, in case, you, in case you haven't picked up. So let's read here. We're going to talk about the wrath of God, right? Good Queen's birthday, three-day weekend uh, topic. Uh, you know, you know, this is the beauty of going through the books, uh, you know, kind of chapter by chapter, section by section, uh, as we, you know, we, we, we are forced to confront topics that maybe we, we would normally skip, uh, you know, and, and not talk about. So let's look here. You guys want to turn the light off? Can't really see the screen. All right. But if you guys fall asleep, I'll call you out. Blair. <laughs> This is funny. I used to always sleep in church growing up. Used to sit. My family would force us to sit on the second row, and I would lean forward with my hands holding my head up, and then, then fall asleep. And I knew the only person who could see me was was the preacher, right? And I didn't really care what he thought. And then the irony of now, later in my life, I'm the one watching other people sleep. <laughs> all right, one chapter one, pick up there in verse 18. We'll read all. We'll read all the chapter, right? Paul writes. It says, "The wrath of God." is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about, about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither, neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their heart to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relationships with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so, they, so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Yowzers. Right? Challenging, right? Challenging, very confronting. And, and you know, as we said, it is, it is, a, it is a squirm-worthy topic, you know? And, and, you know, just to kind of help us frame it, you know, I think understand where we finished off last week there in verse 16, Paul does say, say he's not ashamed of the gospel. And the gospel message, as Paul is going to unpack it here, you know, through the next, you know, six, seven, eight chapters of Romans before he switches gears slightly, um, is, is bad news to start with. If you're familiar with the whole outline, Romans 1, 2, 3 uh, is 
pretty much the central message is everyone's wicked. All right, we're going to talk a, a, a bit that, about that. Uh, you know, Romans, kind of middle of Romans 3 into chapter 4 and into 5 is, is the concept of, uh, the, the, despite the fact that we're wicked, we can be made righteous by putting our faith in Jesus, by trusting in him, looking to him, not trying to stand before a holy God and a just God on our own and on our own merits, but instead putting our trust, looking to Jesus and him alone. All right? And then, of course, Romans Roman 6 gets into uh, the, 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 the response that should occur when we understand those, those previous five chapters, which is that of a dying to sin, being buried with Christ in baptism and raised, raised anew, which is obviously repentance and baptism. Then Romans 6 uh, and 7 and 8 really goes into the Christian life. Right? So again, it's a, it's a good framework, and that's why people say, look, this is Paul's uh, you know, greatest work, because he is laying out uh, you know, the, the totality of the gospel message uh, from, from uh, lost all the way through to redemption. Okay? Uh, we're, this week and next week, we're in the lost portion of things. Okay? And, and so we're going to look at these topics, but I think it is important to, 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 to take note that Paul's not ashamed of that. And then I think sometimes we can shrink back because we're we, we, don't, we don't want to put forward the side of God uh, as an angry and wrathful God, right? Uh, and and J.I. Packer, a famous writer, says, Clearly the theme of God's wrath is one about which the biblical writers feel no inhibitions wh whatever. Why then should we? Why, then, why, when the Bible is vocal about it, should we feel obliged to be silent? You know, and his point is a good point. And even if you, if you look at the literature over the years, it's not until like the 1800s, 1850s, uh, that Christian writers even begin to shy away from it, right? And, and so it's more of a modern-day phenomenon of, of, of uh, and specifically in the Western world, as we'll see here in a second, of being afraid of, of, of uh, you know, standing firm on a doctrine that is uncomfortable, the, the, the wrath of God, right? Uh, and and I've, I've edited this quote slightly for, for the preteen's sake, you know, but, but Miroslav, uh, Wolf is a, is a famous, he, he's a lecturer at Princeton University in America. Uh, he grew up in Croatia, which, you know, has some, some horrific things in its past. And, and he writes about this, right? And I'll explain it. We'll read it, and then I'll explain what he's saying here. He says, my thesis, that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance, will be unpopular with many Christians, especially theologians in the West. The person who is inclined to dismiss it, I suggest imagining that you are delivering a lecture in a war zone, which is where that paper that underlies this was originally delivered. He says, among your listeners are people whose cities and village have been first plundered, then burned, and leveled to the ground, then a lot of other horrific things. He says, the topic of the lecture, Christian attitude toward violence. The thesis, we should not retaliate since God is perfect, non-coercive love. Soon you would discover that it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of that thesis, that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land soaked in the blood of the innocent, it would invariably die, and as one watches it die, one will do well to reflect about many other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. You know, and, and what he's essentially saying here is this idea that, that, that a lot of people, especially in Western world, who have grown up uh, cushy lives, right? not, not seeing the horrors of the evils of the depths of mankind, uh, you know, can, can very e easily believe this idea that, that, and expand an idea where the Bible talks about that God is love, right? And, 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 and that there is truth in that, God is love. And, and as we'll see here, wrath flows from that love, uh, you know? And, and, and 
But he, he's saying that, that, that those who have actually faced tragedy, they're, they're deeply comforted by the fact and the knowledge that there is a God who, who, who is a just God and who will bring wrath, who will right wrongs, right? Who, who will pay back, you know, bring true justice. Uh, you know, and, and, and in some sense, what he says even elsewhere is that, that our displeasure to it reveals more about ourselves than it does about God. Right? And it reveals that, that, that perhaps we become too soft and too sheltered uh, from morality uh, when, when uh, most of the world and most of the history of mankind has actually found comfort knowing that, that, that our God, the God we worship, is a God of wrath. That he will bring justice. That he will bring punishment. And, and, and if we haven't suffered, then, then maybe that's harder. Uh, you know, but he says, try, try to say that to people who have been through that, and it would fall on deaf ears. That, that makes sense? Right? Awesome. You know, it's a good, good challenge for us. And so with that in mind, okay, so it's a helpful topic. We need to understand the topic. We'll, we'll look at more in depth at this chapter about the reason for, for the wrath of God, uh, how it is revealed even now, right? I know we have understanding of that it, that it comes in the end as well on Judgment Day, and we'll touch on that. And then what, what's the remedy for it? So we'll look at those three ideas, right? The reason, the revealing of it, and the remedy. Amen? All right, so let's look here at the reason for it. You know, he starts there in our text uh, with, with the wrath of God has been revealed from heaven against all godlessness and wickedness of the people. Right? Godlessness and wickedness, right? Godli godlessness being mankind's rebellion against their creator, right? Uh, and, and so th this idea that Paul will talk about that we all inherently actually know we're created and that, that, we, uh, that there is a higher power as us uh, that's not us, and we rebel against that, so we become godless, Right? And, and, and that's what that word godlessness is, is driving at. But, the, but the, the, what naturally follows after that is wickedness, which is against mankind. Right? If you sever this, then, then anything goes this way. Right? Which is what our world is more figuring out. Right? People are severing this and declaring, really, there's no truth. Uh, there's no right and wrong. Well, that's just going to produce chaos this way. Because there's nothing restraining us. Right? And so Paul says, look here, you want to know why God's wrath is coming? Well, because mankind is severing this, and then it's going to destroy this, and God is the source of all things, and he sees that unraveling. Right? Uh, and then he goes on to say that, that this wickedness, this godlessness and wickedness, it suppresses the truth. This is a very interesting concept, because in Paul's mind, as we, as, we, as we unpack these verses, you're going to see Paul operates under the assumption that everyone knows the truth. You can't suppress something that you don't possess. Right? You can't put a lid on something unless you yourself have it. And we live in a world that says, oh, well, I have, you know, I, I don't believe in God. There's not enough evidence. And they have lots of excuses. Whereas Paul will literally say what? People are without excuse. So, so you got to understand from Paul's paradigm and how he sees the world, everyone knows. Everyone knows truth. Right? Whether they say they do or don't, is irrelevant, from, from God's vantage point, they, they have that truth, but they suppress it, and that's what wickedness and godliness, godlessness does. It suppresses it. And two things in, in, in particular here in this text that, that is suppressed by this life of, 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 of separation from God and destruction of our relationships with one another. The first that goes is that of God's existence. And that's like what he says there in verse 19. He says, what may be known about God is plain. Right? Why? Well, God has made it plain. Uh, you know, the, the invisible God, his qualities are clearly seen, right? 
Uh, and so therefore, people are without excuse. Right? And even further down, there in verse 27, he says, uh, they, knew, they knew God, but they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. Yeah, this is interesting because most people who, who you know, they, they, maybe you encounter that, that claim they don't believe in God, uh, they, they try to, they, they, the, the reality is we, we believe that sometimes, that they uh, don't have enough evidence. Right? And I'm not against apologetics. I think apologetics have a place uh, in terms of outreach. But, but we also need to understand that there's something spiritual going on, and that's a suppression of truth. And specifically a, 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 a suppression of a truth that, that people in reality don't want to believe is true. Right? You know, and there's one famous atheist, I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but he says, you know, that, that it's not, he goes, in reality, it's not, it's not that, I, that uh, I, don't, I don't believe in God. He says, I don't want to believe in God. Because if that's true, there's, there's, there's grand implications to that. And that's what Paul's writing here. That's what God is trying to show us, that, that this pattern of wickedness, this way of the world, it suppresses truth that is plain. You look at creation, you look at the world, you look at the beauty of it, you go you know, a couple hours outside of Perth and you stare, stare at the, scar, the stars and you realize, my goodness, what, what, what is man? What am I? I'm nothing. I'm a speck. Right? There's something far greater, and creation screams out that there's a God, and that's what Paul says here, but, but wickedness tends to suppress that truth, that God exists. Even when he says there in verse 23, they exchange the glory of the creator for created things in terms of what they worship. Uh, you, know, you, you can't exchange something again that you don't possess. So Paul believes, hey, you, you have it, and people, we, we, we let go of it. Right? The second truth that, that, that godlessness and wickedness suppresses is the existence of, of wickedness and righteousness. Right? And we see that several times in this text. Uh, there in verse 25, it says, exchange the truth of, about God for a lie, or literally, they exchange the truth about God for the lie. And a lot of people think there's some grand parallels here between Genesis 1, 2, and 3, and, and here in, in this chapter, second half of Romans 1. Uh, and so the, the reference to exchanging the truth about God for the lie is the lie of Satan there in the beginning uh, this idea that man can live apart from God, right? And that God is somehow withholding from them. And so if they take and eat the fruit and do, do what they want, uh, then they'll become like God. They'll no, no longer have a need for God, right? Uh, and Paul says, look, here, here's, you, you want to know why God is, is uh, full of wrath? Well, you know, we, we've, we've severed our connection to him. We destroy our relationship with one another. We suppress the truth that he exists, and we suppress the reality that there is uh, right and wrong. Right? Uh, again, like I said many times in this text, right? Verse 28, they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. You can't retain something you don't possess. It's an underlying assumption in everything Paul's saying. In, 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 in uh, what are they called? Anthropologists, people who study people across cultures, they all understand that, that across all cultural bounds, there is an inherent sense of right and wrong in mankind. Right? Even those who, don't, who claim there isn't even a God, have a, they have a moral compass. And for sure, a lot of that is culturally influenced, but there's also a lot of evidence that shows it just transcends culture and it transcends time. That everyone has, as Paul will later on say in chapter 2, this moral law written on heart and inscribed on their heart. We try, to, we try to cover it up, we try to suppress it, but the reality is it's there, right? Uh, that, that, that all makes sense. You know, if you want a, a, a more modern look on it, right, go see the, the Broadway play, The 
Broadway play Wicked. Have you guys seen it? No one's seen it. Oh, there we go. A couple. few have seen it, right? Were you shamed to admit you've seen it? I've seen it. Uh, I forgot that. I had to ask Michelle if I saw it. Right. And I did see it, right? And, and it's an interesting, it's an interesting play. It's a, it's a prequel to uh, The Wizard of Oz, if you're not familiar with that. Uh, you know, and, and it's interesting because one, one of the dominating questions is that in that uh, playwright is that of, of, you know, the sinfulness or the wickedness of mankind. Are they born that way? Or is, it, or is wickedness and evil thrust upon them? Right? Are the characters the way they are because they were born that way? Or because they, they have had that wickedness uh, ingrained in them. You know, what's very interesting about both those perspectives here from a secular playwright is they absolve mankind of all responsibility. Which is kind of, that is a modern day perspective, right? You know, I was born this way, well, that, that absolved your responsibility. Well, I am this way because uh, the cultural pressures in, in my, from my friends and my family. Again, taking away personal responsibility. It's the opposite of what Paul is saying, right? Opposite of what he's saying, right? Uh, and even in that, that, that playwright, right, the Wicked Witch is actually good. That all-powerful Oz is actually a sham. And Glinda the Good Witch is actually wicked, right? And so it's, it's a pretty accurate modern take on, on, you know, mankind of, you know what, there isn't really any right and wrong. What we think is bad is actually good. What we think is good is actually bad. This blurring, right, of, of truth, right? Uh, relativism does the same thing. Blurring truth. There is, no, there is no black, white. There is no right, wrong. There is no good, evil. Uh, it's just, you know, wh whatever you want it to be, that's what it is. Right? What does our creator think about that? <coughs> it's, it's what is arousing his wrath. Right? <coughs> why? You know, why does it, why does it, you know, why is this all a reason for his wrath? I mean, look, look at the, the end result, Right? You know, there in verse 21, it says that, 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 that our thinking, our minds, become futile. God has given us minds, he's given us brains that are useful. But when we go down this path of wickedness and godlessness, uh, you know, and, and, and suppression of truth, uh, what, what, what our minds are made to be, which is useful, they actually become useless. All right? You know, even our hearts, he says there, they become darkened. They're intended to be light. They're intended to be a guide for us. But when we choose that path, we, we, we bring in darkness uh, and we stifle that. You know, verse 25, exchanging the truth about God for, for a lie. E even some of the, you know, more detailed lists there of sins, like 122, you know, they exchange the glory of the immortal God for that of created things, right? This idea that, that mankind, if you, if you look at the, if you read Genesis, and I love Genesis, maybe we'll preach through Genesis next year or something like that, you know, but... Uh, you, you look at, in, in Genesis, I mean, mankind is bestowed with incredible honor. You know what I mean? I mean, we, we are created. The, the Bible paints this picture and tells us a story that, that mankind is created to reign, in some sense, as God's vice regents, his, his, his authorities on earth. And we're meant to cultivate, uh, bring, bring uh, order and productivity to the world. But, but when we choose to rebel and choose the path of godlessness and wickedness, Paul says, that that, that, that that which is created in the image of God begins to worship lesser things. Things of this world, created things, you know. And, and, and it's interesting because even there, and look again at verse 25, right? He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. You, you, you can either worship your creator or you can worship and serve created things. 
and, and this is the point that, that Timothy Keller makes in a lot of his books. If you've, if you've never read his book, Counterfeit Gods, which is on idolatry, it's the whole basis of that book, is this idea that everyone worships something. Your, your options, according to Romans, is you worship your creator or you worship that which the creator has made. Everyone worships and serves something, right? What, what's, what's, that, what's that thing you're worshiping or what's that, that God that you're worshiping? What's he actually going to do with your life is, is a question, right? <coughs> Even there, 26, you know, verses 26 to, to 27, you know, it says that, that God gave them over to shame for lust, and he, and he talks about these, you know, uh, homosexual, you know, actions, not, not just uh, temptations, but actually acting on it. You know, it's interesting because Paul's writing to Romans, and, and people think that, that, that mankind is, is evolving and getting better and better. Roman society back then is very similar to what our society is now. I mean, you read this, the, the, you know, Paul's sinless here in Romans 1. It's, it's the modern-day world we live in, yeah. right? Uh, I do think it's important, you know, just to, uh, as, a, a, as a side note, because this is a passage that many people take and, and use out of context, trying to say that homosexuality is a worse sin than all other sins, right? Maybe you've, maybe you've heard people say that because there is this progression of God giving them over, giving them over, uh, you know, to, to, to shameful lusts. And so they say, well, look, you know, homosexuality is... is a sin that falls at the end of that spectrum of God giving people over, right? But, but there's a flaw with that argument. <laughs> and that's, and that, that this chapter we read actually doesn't end there in verses uh, 26 and, and 27. It continues on. You know, and it continues on with, with, with uh, you know, envy there in verse 29. Uh, you know, uh, murder, strife, deceit, malice, gossip. Slander, God-hater, insolent, arrogant, boastful, uh, disobeying your parents, kids, uh, having no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. In, 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 the, in the New Testament, uh, for sure, there is no sense of, of homosexuality being a worse sin. It is a sin just like all other sins, right? Uh, that, that makes sense, you know, and so, so again, some people sometimes use that, uh, you know, but, but you think about even how that, how that passage ends there in 28 uh, all, all the way down to 30, 32, is, is this undoing of the created order, right? Worshiping and serving created things rather than, uh, rather than the creator. Exchanging natural relations for unnatural relations, right? Uh, you know, again, disturbing the created order. And, and, and then the, 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 in Paul's mind, the end, uh, you know, cherry on top in some sense, is the destruction of relationships with one another. The very fabric of community. God, you know, God Himself uh, is a triune God who who lives in harmonious relationship within Himself with the Father, Son, and the Spirit. We are created to also live in harmony and community. Uh, and the end result of wickedness and godlessness, and the reason that God's wrath is coming, is that of the ultimate, the, you know, that we destroy our, one another, our relationships with one another, right? And again, Paul has there's a lot in there. Okay, and the second and third point, much shorter, I promise, all right? You know, but you think about, okay, what's the reason for God's wrath? Well, my, my goodness, open your eyes and look at the world. What, Paul's synopsis is very accurate of this undoing of what we as individuals are meant to be and what our relationships are meant to look like, you know? All of that stems from this turning away from God and the suppression of truth. Amen? You guys follow that? Uh, important to understand here, though, and this, I'm not going to try to say his last name, uh, but famous quote, right? The line between good and evil runs not between us and them, but down the middle of each of us. Right? We're looking at just chapter 1, but chapter 2 begins with, you therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. 
You know, so as we all sat and read those, the, all those lists of sins and you thought about other people who have those, chapter 2, verse 1 is for us then, right? We sit and we pass judgment on other people. We think about other people when we read those lists of sins rather than ourselves. And the reality is the Bible doesn't paint this picture of us and them, good people, bad people. No, it's, we're all actually a mixed bag, right? We all sin. We all fall short, all right? Makes sense, and that's, that's that. All right, let's look. Okay, so there's the revealing, okay? The revealing of God's wrath. Okay, so, so Paul, Paul starts that section there that we read. The wrath of God is being revealed. Now, now, our understanding of the wrath of God is often number three on this, right? The day of wrath, right? So we think, oh, the wrath of God is being revealed. Well, where's the, where's the thunderbolts? Where's the fire, right? Where's, where's the raining down uh, of, of burning sulfur, right? Where's the, uh, the destruction of, of the wicked, right? Uh, that's coming, and Paul will talk about that in chapter 2. But the revealing of God's wrath that he puts forward here in this passage is actually a heck of a lot scarier. Right? It's actually a lot scarier. I mean, he does, again, he does two and three, are, are, that's later. You know, in, in chapter eight, he'll talk about the, the suffering and frustration that creation itself has been subjected to, which causes it to long for the next life. That's a form of God's wrath. And obviously the day of the Lord that's coming, that's going to be a day of God's wrath. But there's, there's this giving over that Paul says numerous times. You guys see that? Verse 24. <coughs> again in verse 26. Again in verse 28. You know, and, and this is scary. Because God in some senses is, uh, you know, saying, okay, if, if that's what you want, then go have that. If you want to worship a created thing, then, then go worship that created thing. If that's what you desire, go and have. Right? And, and, and uh, even here, look, look, look there in verse 24, right? Therefore God gave them over in, in sinful desires. Sinfuls, it's, it's uh, desire is the same word there that we talked about in James 1, where when tempted, no one should say God is tempted uh, because each person is tempted when by their own desire, evil desire, uh, they're, they're uh, you know, um, tempted to, 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 to pursue that, right? But there's no, there's no, evil there in James 1. And, and in the Greek here, there's, 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 there's not sinful. It's determined by context. It just means strong desire. And, and, and so we have these desires, and a lot of these are God-given desires, but, but we try to satisfy them in ways outside of God's plan. God says, hey, here's the proper way to satisfy your sexual desires. Uh, get it, get, get, uh, grow up, be, be a man or be a woman, be independent from your father and mother because you need to leave your father and mother in order to be united together uh, and, and, and have self-control by, by only having sexual relations uh, within marriage, right? That's God's way, right? doesn't mean God has a low view of, of sex. He has a high view of sex. He says, hey, here's the proper way to fulfill it, right? But we could take that desire and we can try to fulfill it in our own way, in a way that we think is a good idea, right? And, and God says, well, that's foolish, but if that's what you want, I'll give you over to that. You think that's going to satisfy it? Well, go. Give it a try. Right? And, and three times in this text, it talks about that idea that God gives us over. God gives us over. God gives us over, you know? And it, it's a very interesting image, you know? And if you're familiar with, with Luke's gospel, Luke has the famous parable of the prodigal son, right? There's a famous Rembrandt picture of, of the prodigal returning home, and everyone loves that. And there's, there's, 
hundreds and potentially thousands of works of art picturing that moment of the prodigal returning home. Right? And it took me way longer than it should to find one of the prodigal leaving. But he left. The prodigal comes to his father and says, give me my share of the, my inheritance. And what does the father do? He lets him go. He gives him over to his desire. He thinks, the prodigal thinks, I know what's best. Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go live life. I don't want your rules. I don't want your restrictions. I don't want your boundaries on my behavior. I'm going to do whatever I want to do. And so the father gives it to him. Let's him go. Of course, you know how the story plays out. He ends up longing to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs are eating, which in Jewish thought is an, <laughs> the epitome of uncleanliness. But that's a form of God's wrath. <coughs> that's God giving them over to, our, to, to his desires uh, with the aim ultimately of destroying those, those, those ungodly ambitions. All right, you guys follow that? You know, Oscar Wilde, who's a famous, uh, famous writer, he says, uh, when the gods, and he's not Christian, he says, when the gods wish to punish us, they answer our prayers. When the gods w wish to punish us, they, they answer our prayers. And, and he's honing in on this idea that, that man, our desires and, and what we think will fulfill them is often way off. Way off. And, and, and in our arrogance, pursuing those, we, God's wrath gets revealed as he lets us go. And, and if you've been a Christian a while, uh, you know, you may be foggy about that cycle downward that led you ultimately to become a Christian. But most people go through that cycle as they become Christians. Is they, they plunge headfirst into pursuing their desires, and God gives them over to it, and, and you end up in more and more and more and more mess to the point you get humble and you cry out to God, right? Well, it's God's wrath that's actually pushed you down. You know, as he's, as he's, you know, in some sense, re removed a protective hedge or barrier, right? You guys, you guys following this? Yeah. You know, there's a scary, scary writer in the American Great Awakening, uh, Jonathan Edwards, and his most famous sermon is that of sinners in the hands of an angry God. And, and he talks about that imagery of, of we have no concept of, of how precarious our position is. That even in our rebellion, we don't realize how much God is actually shielding us. But when we persist in stubborn rebellion against our creator, he, he, he puts us over the pit. If that's what you want, you want that, I will give you that. If that's where you want to go, well, then have that. And it's a scary, scary image. Again, we, we think we get away with sin. We think we do things, and oh, where's God's wrath? I, you know, no lightning, no thunderbolt, no destruction in my life. Whoa, way too narrow of a view of wrath there. Way too narrow of a view. And way too narrow of a view of the seriousness of sin. This process of being given over to it, that's how you end up enslaved. That's how you end up addicted to these things, to this way of life and this pattern of living. You know, and you've got to see that here in, in this text, God's wrath operates not by God's intervention, but precisely by him not intervening, letting us go our own way, God abandoning our stubbornness uh, and giving us over to, to the desires that we're trying to fulfill. Amen? Scary as, all right. Lastly, and positive, okay, what, what is the remedy? Okay, so this is a scary picture of, of God's wrath and how, how uh, dangerous it is, this concept of, of, of rebelling against God 
and how that distorts whether we even believe there is a God, and then it distorts even our ability to, to discern right and wrong, uh, and, and, it, and it leads us down this cycle where we become more and more enslaved, more and more entrapped. Well, how in the world do we get out of it? Right? And Paul is not done uh, in, 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 in this section of Romans with dragging us kind of downward. It's like I said, the next chapter is going to be a hammering on the religious uh, you, you think you're not like all those people in chapter one. Well, guess what? Chapter two is spot on for you. You know, and Paul's going to show, show that. But, but his end aim is ultimately there, you know, emerge more clearly in chapter three, but he's already touched on it there in, in 16, 17, is this righteousness that comes by faith. Right? This righteousness that comes by faith. You're not meant to, to hear chapter one and chapter two and in some sense, think that you, in your own power and in your own strength, can, can push back against uh, that, that wrath of God that's coming. Okay, you, you're not meant to, we're not meant to look at those lists and, and, and in and of ourselves try to avoid those things, because that, that's impossible. Paul's thesis, his entire point, up to Romans 3, verse 23, is everyone sins, everyone falls short. But it is meant to, to force us to look at our own heart and see that there is great darkness there, and I'm desperately in need of Jesus. That in myself, I cannot do it, but I need assistance. I need help from the outside, and I need ultimately that, that, the gospel and the power that, that is found in it through Jesus. Secondly, and interesting, the remedy is, is, is something as simple as gratitude. Right? You know, you think about some of the rebukes, right, there, 20, verse 21 and verse 25. They neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks. That's very interesting. Kind of the beginning, the beginning of the slippery slope simply stems from ingratitude. Not being thankful. Not glorifying God. Remember, glory in the Bible means like weight, matter. So, so not, not recognizing God for who he is and for what he, do, what he has done, right? And his role in your life, right? Uh, you know, in 125, he says, you know, talking about they worshiped and served created things rather than a creator who is forever praised. Forever praised. That's how we should regard God. That's how we should see him. That's how we should interact with him. And, and that's the proper way to interact with him. But again, we're following our desires downward, deeper and deeper in the hole, rather than looking to him. You know, First Peter 1, you have to turn there, verse 12, you know, but, but Peter there, as he writes about you know, the, the, the incredible treasure we have in the gospel. You know, he says that, that even the angels long to look into these things, right? The fulfillment of the gospel message, the grand plan, plan of God's salvation across all time. Peter says that even the angels long. And it's that same word, desire again, that's translated, you know, sinful desires or evil desire. They, they, they you know, you can literally translate it. Even the angels uh, lust to look into these things. They, they strongly desire and, and you think about the angels, is, is, is their desire, their chief desire, their chief aim is, is knowing God and understanding God and worshiping God as God. Right? And, and, and you, think about, you think about us, man, we, 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 we settle for lesser things. We settle for lesser things, you know. And you know, I think it's C.S. Lewis who writes that, you know what, we're, we're so, we are too easily satisfied. Mankind is too easily satisfied. We, we, I think the image C.S. Lewis uses is we, we, we settle for playing in the mud when we don't realize that, that there's beautiful beaches in store for us. 
right? We, we choose this lesser thing because we think it's so awesome. We don't realize, man, something far greater is on the table for us. And, and, and so many writers through, through, through time, you know, you know, especially Christian writers, you know, point out this fact that, that the key to really, you know, obviously as, as a Christian, once you put your faith in Jesus and you pledge your life to him and, and, and you've repented and done, done all that, how you stay the course is not done through the power of a greater no, right? It's done through the power of a greater yes. It's not through no, don't do that. No, that's bad. No, don't think that. That's, that's white-knuckle Christianity, right? That's what I call that, right? This, this, oh, let me just use my willpower to say no to that. But, but your fixating of no just fixates you on the problem, which in some sense steers your heart more on that and centers your life more on that problem, Right? You know, and, and, and the answer is more of, hey, a greater yes. And, and, and I think what Paul is trying to show us in this text to a degree is that, look, if you, if you live a thankful life, if you live a life that, man, praises God, worships God as, as he should be worshipped, honors him as he should be honored, praising him as he should be praised, then, then these lesser things become lesser things that we don't turn to. You know, instead we, we end up centered on, 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 on God as we should. You know, the great hymn writer William Cooper, he says the dearest, one of his songs, he says, The dearest idol I have known, whatever that idol be, help me to tear it from thy throne and worship only thee. And we do, we construct these idols, we worship other things, but the reality is if we can let go of that and worship God and Him alone, you know, man, we, we, we save ourselves from, from so, much, so much pain and so much hurt. Amen? Awesome. So that's a challenging, challenging chapter. Hopefully you learn some more things about God's wrath uh, and are inspired then to, to, to worship God as he should be worshipped. Amen? Let's have a prayer, and then we're going to sing a couple songs as we take the, the, the bread and the wine and take up a collection. Uh, let's pray. Our Father, we, we pray you help us, God. Help us to be sobered at, at the thought that, that the God we worship, that you are a God of wrath. And to know that doesn't, that doesn't flow from... You know, the pride-filled anger like, like it does in us, God. But it does flow from a heart of love, God. That you as a father look down on, on, on your children, you know, and see us choosing, choosing paths that, that lead only to pain and suffering and ultimately death, God. We pray, God, that we can, you know, take, take a sober look at, at just the reality and the end product of, of, of the way that, that godless, godlessness and wickedness, you know, destroys the very fabric of the creation you've woven, God. We pray, God, do you help us, God? Help us to, you know, not, not buy into the, you know, the cultural values around us, God, that, that, that's a, that suppress the truth of your existence and, and the truth of, of, of there being right and wrong, God. And we pray, help us, God. Help us to be a people that, that worship you, God. Help you to be our, our, our greatest desire, the greatest longing in our heart. Help us to turn to you, God. Help our souls to find rest truly only in you, God. God, give us strength, God. Give us much grace and mercy and forgiveness along the way, God, as we, as we put our hope in, 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 in your son. Uh, and, and we're so grateful that, that we can you know, take the, the bread and the wine and, and remember you know, the sacrifice he's made, that, that, you know, the pouring out of your wrath on him rather than on us, God. And we pray that that just greater fuels our gratitude and our thankfulness, God. Again, we thank you and we ask this in Christ's name. Amen.